Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, we talk a little bit about Southeast Asia cinema news, uh, some update on the new Wolverine film Logan, Nick Say ordered to stay out of the kitchen, and our films this week are Cook Up a Storm and Matt Damon in The Great Wall. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and sitting at his reviews desk in the lair of the Tao Te is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there, Paul. How are you doing? Well, actually, you should say the only prison in all of the Great Wall, the only <laughs> holding cell in all of the Great the, the, Wall. The singular holding cell, right? Yeah. With the one key, with yeah. only one key. <laughs> On a massive key ring. Um, yeah. How are you doing, sir? I'm all right. I just came back from a, a really short vacation um, in Japan. Um, I went to uh, Osaka and Kyoto. Well, first Kyoto because um, my friend, my friends there. Uh, this is my first like non-movie related trip, and I don't remember how long. But um, I just went to uh, to see my friends. A few of my friends are running the uh, Kyoto Marathon. Um, and I'm happy to report that four of the four people that ran, all four of them completed the marathon. Um, and the uh, one of the runners even bested his personal time, so it was great. And then spent one day in uh, Osaka. I just landed uh, this evening, actually. Oh, excellent, excellent. Osaka, also known as the favorite town of uh, the girl band Shonen Knife. Yeah, and in, in, in a bit of a sort of a parallel irony, actually... Uh, my wife was supposed to be uh, over in Hong Kong right now preparing for a trip to Japan uh, with her, with my mother-in-law, her mom, and her sister. And unfortunately, did not uh, pan out because we are still stuck in, uh, in uh, immigration green card limbo over here. Um, so, Blah! Yeah, that, that trip has had to get canceled and the tickets had to get exchanged and it's been a whole... Big uh, sort of rigmarole, but uh, we are waiting patiently, and uh, we'll see what comes of what. I'm, I, I was hoping there was a plan where I was going to go with her, um, not to Japan, but I was going to go to Hong Kong and um, stay there and take care of our daughter while she was over having girls' time in Japan, and I was going to go out and see movies, and it was going to be great, and I'm still here in the U.S., so uh, hopefully that trip will be pushed a little bit further, maybe into the summertime. We'll have to wait and see. There's some other stuff going on that may interfere with that uh, but I will, you know, update everybody on what's going on with that a bit later. But we're not here to talk about that kind of stuff. We are here to talk about movie stuff. So before we get into our reviews this week, as Mr. Moss said, we're going to be looking at the Nick Tsai film as well as Matt Damon. Uh, but we're going to talk about that after we get into our news section. So let me throw the ball back over to Kevin's court with this week's news. Well, Paul, I think I think all film geeks 
uh, when they talk about Matt Damon, they should be saying Matt Damon. Yeah, Matt Damon. that's a or, Team America. Or if you're a if you're a Sarah Silverman fan, you know, uh, and and pardon the language, effing <laughs> Matt Damon, right? Uh, um, so yeah, that you know, the, not really a news per se, but something that caught my eye over on social media, um, a story about Asian Americans trolling Matt Damon on things like Twitter and whatnot, which is, it's kind of funny. Uh, people were like, you know, saying thank you to Matt Damon for, you know, saving them and being the savior and, and all this stuff that we'll get into when we talk about the film. And a couple of them were kind of clever, kind of creative, where they had like taken stills from the Disney Mulan film and cropped out Mulan's head and put Matt Damon's head on top of it. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, again, I think I, we'll talk a little bit more about this. It's funny, but it's also a little bit misdirected because, you know, it's not like Matt Damon wrote the movie. It's not like he directed the film. He just got a super big paycheck for starring in it, you know, and putting his name uh, up in the in the the headline. So he's an easy target, but I think he's also uh, maybe not the not the correct target. But we'll talk a little bit more about that. Did you happen to see any of these any of the trolling going on in your uh, social media browsing, or were you uh, sort of cut off while you were in Osaka? Well, I was kind of cut off, and honestly, like I was sort of going into it the same, the same um, approach as you. That it's it's not his fault. I mean, the dude, he he saw the everything on paper looks like a great deal. I mean, it's it's a big paycheck. You get the China market. You'll be sort of the um, the the van, you know, the big star on the set, and you get to go live in Beijing for a couple months. And it's you know he probably didn't read the script when he signed up for it. You know he saw Zhang Yimou and 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 you know it's a big well, budget. He could be part of. He thought he could part be part of history. You know, this is a, a very historic uh, co-production between China and you and the U.S. And he thought oh, I could be part of history, so why not? So it, it's it's very odd that everyone just sort of blames him for this so-called whitewashing. It's like when people blame Tilda Swinton for taking up that role in Doctor Strange. She didn't write the freaking movie. Yeah, it's Marvel's fault for recasting it to to for 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 a Caucasian actor, but it, it, it's weird that people asked. Tilda Swinton to to react to it I mean, because she again got a paycheck to work in a the film. These these were just working, you know. How many yeah. people can actually afford to to work on principle, not in the movie business? Yeah, not too many. And and we'll again discuss some of, more of our thoughts on this whole issue as we get further into the film review in the latter half of today's show. Um, but let's get into some actual movie news this week. Uh, what do you have for us first? Well, first up, there's a quick sort of roundup of uh, some news from Southeast Asia, and one of them is kind of news, and the other, not really. Um, first of all, a, a um, documentary uh, named Absent Without Leave. Uh, it's a Malaysian documentary made by a Malaysian uh, uh, director um, um, named, uh, I'm trying to find his name, but oh, Liu, uh, uh, Lao Kek, Lao Kek Huak. Um, has been banned uh, from public theatrical uh, release in Malaysia. And this um, too bad because the film um, actually had its uh, world premiere in, in Busan and then um, it won an award in Taipei Film Festival and it's played and it also uh, won the Audience Award at the Singaporean uh, International Film Festival. So the neighbor. Unfortunately, the film has been banned in Malaysia because it 
deals with the director's um, father's experience or his grandfather's experience um, as a uh, member of the Malaya um, Communist Party, um, which apparently is still a very um, controversial history uh, in the country. And for dealing with that, the film has been banned. Uh, from public public exhibition and not just you can't even hold free screenings it's, it's, just, it's just you cannot publicly um, um, show the film so the filmmakers uh, have uh, turned to the internet they will be releasing um, the film on the internet um, for free for Malaysia uh, for people in Malaysia um, the film will play uh, on the internet between uh, February 28th to March 5th um, and unfortunately it will only be for free for a Malaysian audience uh, on the internet. Um, if you go to uh, the film's Facebook page or the film production company's Facebook page, Hummingbird Production, uh, Hummingbird is one word, uh, you will find more information about that if you're interested and you're, if you're in Malaysia. Um, but yeah, it's it's sort of it's always weird to hear about these things from you know um, uh, countries that people don't. Really, everyone talks about sort of. China, right? Everyone talks about movies being banned in China, and no one seemed to care about when other countries in Southeast Asia or in other regions in Asia, uh, they do the same sort of stuff, and no one sort of bats an eye because you know, again, it's the whole business aspect of China, right? And it's, it's, it's. I guess it's, um, it's a very sort of complex, um, uh, what's the word? Sort of relationship or bias or view on China. And how they think because, you know, Malay- there's no money going to Malaysia and even Singapore, uh, just not as much money as, as China. So therefore, you know, it's not a, uh, a country that matter when they do things like this. Um, I just find that sort of double standard uh, very odd. But anyway, so that's happening and sort of related uh, news. Uh, there was a Straight Times article um, out last week about um, uh, why local erotic films uh don't work at the local box office. Um, this is uh, coming in time for a homegrown uh, erotic thriller named Seal Up. Um, the film actually uh, um, does, it's, it's sort of similar to a uh, untold story-esque plot um, about a, uh, a, a love triangle and uh, infidelity and murder. And apparently there's a lot of sex in it. And uh, it actually had its premiere in um, at the Singapore Film Festival with an R21 rating, which means no one under 21 can can view the film, and that's the highest rating you can get in Singapore. Uh, unfortunately, um, the um, box office outlook does not look good because uh, local home local erotic films, including Lang Tong, which is the uh, film also made by the same director, Seal Up, uh, Rubbers, a, a sex comedy about uh, uh, condoms, I guess, and also In the Room by local Altair, Eric Koo, all flopped at the box office. Now, um, these films, or apparently, uh, collectively, these films made uh, less than 250000 Singaporean dollars, which is not even the quarter of the 1.4 million um, or even the sort of usual uh, box office results for even modest local hits, you know, say like um, uh, Taxi Taxi, which is a film in 2013. It's not even Jack, I mean, Jack Neo is like the sort of gold standard, right? He makes about four, three, four million, or four, five million dollars, but this, these films added together didn't even make 250,000, which I think it's a bit sad. But, um, I guess some of the points that the uh, the article make is that you know 
or it asks whether Singaporean um, um, audiences just don't want to watch erotic films made locally. Why or is that true? Um, and it's it, it was their bias. Um, according to one, the, the director of Rubbers, um, he even says himself that um, he would actually he would rather watch Fifty Shades of Grey or Wolf of Wall Street because he knows that he could expect. Um, more nudity and 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 better sex scenes because uh, Asian people would or he himself would think that Asian or local films aren't as sexy, which I find really interesting. Because well, first of all, because I find that uh, sex scenes in Korean films are really probably some of the most explicit I've ever seen, um, without being pornographic. Um, so I find it interesting that that um, the Singaporean director says that Hollywood films, uh, Hollywood erotic films, have sexier scenes than than Asian films. So you know that's interesting. Um, I guess I think we post that link um, on Facebook and Sulap opens um, in Singaporean uh, cinemas on February twenty third, and we'll see if it continues uh, the trend. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder if it, part of it has to do with the practice of giving your identity card whenever you buy tickets um right something that friend of the show marco spomberg had had mentioned to me at one point during a conversation about living in singapore i mean you know here you go watch a movie and you buy the ticket maybe you know sure they can track if you use your credit card but if you go and you just pay cash you know nobody's really knows what you're watching but maybe there's a sense in Singapore that, you know, that because you're giving your identity card anytime you watch a film, that Big Brother's watching, they're, they're tracking you if you go and see these, you know, adult films. Um, and maybe they just feel uncomfortable by that. Or may, maybe it's like well, you said, maybe they just don't have, they don't, that's not what they want to see right now. Well, interestingly, uh, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey and Fifty Shades Darker, both R21 in Singapore, do do pretty good business, um, um, but you know partly that's because these these are big Hollywood films, and of course there are fans of the book, uh, especially somewhere like Singapore where you have a lot of, you know very um, English educated people, and you know probably had this huge fan base, um, and and I guess we should bring up I guess I should sort of bring up that In the Room is a very artsy artsy film, it's not really a mainstream film. Lang Tong um, doesn't also probably doesn't have any real big stars and I guess um, it also has really negative reviews and so does Sulap. Sulap I've seen some um, I've read some um, or watched some reviews coming out of the Singapore Film Festival and they're all pretty negative. Um, so part of it it could just be not not because of the, the sexual content, but just that these films don't offer the same draw um, as as the Hollywood erotic films. I mean, these films are just sort of not appealing to to mainstream audience. Mm. Do do Scud films make it over to Singapore? Oh, I doubt. <laughs> Scud films barely 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 get on screen in Hong Kong. Forget about it, right? But actually, what you were saying about I mean, in Hong Kong, when people watch category three films, if they don't, they are legally um, um, obligated to show identification uh, if they're they're if, if um, they're uh, suspected of being under eighteen. So. Um, I don't. I'm not sure how. Sing, I've never had to give I, the, the films I watched in Singapore weren't even M18. I think so. I didn't even have to like show any identification to watch something like. Uh, God, what was that? Um, that local film that I saw. I already forgotten um, the name. The one with. Uh, the one with uh, what's her name? Yeah. Uh, Michelle Chong. Michelle Chong. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Lulu the movie. The movie, yeah, Lulu the movie was like, PG, was like a twelve or nine hundred fifteen. So, um, I, I I don't know how they track ID cards of people. Uh, if they like have to be in the computer or or how it works, or they just have to show like proof of age. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure if that's uh, so. That's an interesting point that you brought up, and I should look into that. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and send a message over to Mr. Spomberg and see if he can give us a bit of clarification on that. Next up, uh, so talking about you know category three and and M18s and R21. Um, by the way, there is a blog on the internet. Um, I think a British blog called "I Only Watch 18s." Um, 18 is the uh, adult rating in, in UK, and this guy only watches uh, 18 films, and he likes to write about it on his blog. Anyway, that's just a sort of random point. Um, category three news here in Hong Kong. Um, Perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, Logan, the new uh, Wolverine film, uh, supposedly the last one with Hugh Jackman, has been rated Category 3 here in Hong Kong, which means no one under 18 may be admitted. Not without a parent. You just cannot be, you just cannot see the film if you're under 18. Um, huge, huge development, considering that the X-Men movies uh, make a lot of money, and it would have served the financial interest of Fox to to cut it for a rated 2B, which does not have an age requirement, or a, a minimum age, or maximum age. Um, and yet, they decide to uh, uh, go the route of uh, making it, uh, not cutting it at all, and uh, make it category free. I think that's, of course, um, Logan. The approach of Logan was partly because of the success of Deadpool, and I think that Fox um, took the same strategy here uh, with with Logan. That you know, even with a category for him, Deadpool actually did very well here in Hong Kong. Uh, even though, note that. Uh, uh, Deadpool did have a separate Category 2B release, which only had about 20, 30 seconds of difference in violence. Um, so, so I guess the question here is, one, is Logan's Category 3 for violence a um, bit like Deadpool, where it was only a matter of maybe 30, 40 seconds of cuts needed? Um, and two, is Fox going to try and maximize their, um, their, their revenue by creating a separate 2B version um, and have it come out like a week later, just like with Deadpool. But it's very interesting that so we, we've gotten this. Uh, in, um, well, first of all, it tells Western audiences because rated R was a very sort of wide rating, right? This category three tells people that this film is really going to be violent, and and I think um, it's an interesting sign of what uh, the superhero genre has gone to. And and again, this provides sort of a preview for audiences in the States if they don't know... If they want to bring their uh, a 12-year-old to watch Logan, they, they may not want to do this. I am excited to see it, and uh, you know, hopefully uh, they're not just uh, pulling a Deadpool to pull a Deadpool, and hopefully it, it, you know, the, the rating fits with the content. I hope so. Yeah, let's see if it's if it's more than just 30, 40 seconds of difference. Um, extra, it's not in the notes, but I as remember this piece of news while we were talking, because we were talking about cinemas. Um, UA Shatin, um, which is, was Paul's, I guess, was it kind of your local cinema, UA Shatin? You have the fond memories of this really crappy cinema in Shatin, Paul? It was, it wasn't that crappy, actually. I mean, it was, it was a decent cinema, pre, pre-stadium seating cinemas, you know. And and it was the closest one outside of there was a tiny independent cinema in Funleng, uh, which was the closest to me. And it was a, that was a two house, really sort of rundown, old style Hong Kong cinema. But I loved going there to watch local films, um, just because of the atmosphere of the place. And when that closed down, yeah, the Shatin Cinema, which was I want to say, 
five or six houses because they had like three above ground and then two or three below ground uh, was right. the next closest thing. And then they tore down the above ground houses. The two or three below ground houses are still there and still running, but they're really tiny cinemas. It's like, you know, you, you, you probably seen home theaters that are bigger than these cinema houses in, um, you know, very expensive homes. And it's, you know, it's just not a fun place to go because the seats are old, they're they're cramped, they're not stadium style. So we always went down a couple more stops to Festival Walk as sort of our main cinema for a while. Um, and they were supposed to build new a new, I don't think it was supposed to be an IMAX, but I think it was supposed to be a new stadium cinema there. And no, the IMAX was in the plan. The IMAX was in the building plans yeah. that were submitted to the government. Yeah. And something yeah. happened and the building construction never got done. And what you have in at the Shatin uh, Newtown Plaza, I don't know if it's phase three or whatever they called it, but you just had this big, huge, empty space where construction was started and never finished. And it's been there. It was for years and years and years. And I've you know occasionally asked people, hey, you know what's going on with that? And, and like, no, no idea. And it just never happened. Right. Well, um, I, I find I find UA Shatin at this current uh, a form one of the worst cinemas I've ever seen. It's uh, it's actually not a small room at all. Actually, I think it houses about 300 seats, um, 300 to 400 seats. It's not small at all, but it has a screen that's about. It almost feels like I'm watching a 27 uh, inch television yes, from my sofa. Yeah, the, the screens are that's like the just effect. super tiny. Yes, and, and, and that it... made it one of the worst cinemas in Hong Kong. Um, and, but, so I find it very funny that this happened. And, uh, by the way, you, you would be glad to know that the, 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 um, uh, New World Center, the shopping mall, uh, where the, the cinema is located, finally reached an agreement. Um, so what happened was that the building plans for the new cinema, um, were rejected and the mall never got to work on a new plan. And it was, they were wrangling with the government. They've been wrangling with the government, uh, for years. And finally the plans were approved. Um, late last year, I think, and uh, con so construction is underway for a new cinema in that mall. But before that happened, a couple of days ago, um, a poor woman watching a film at UA Shatin Cinema was knocked out by falling debris <laughs> on top of one of the houses, <laughs> which finally, finally highlights the, sh the, 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 I almost said the S word, but the crappiness uh, uh, and the and the state of disarray that is going on at that basement. It is literally a basement cinema, right? Uh, and of course, we were joking. Wow, 4D cinema finally <laughs> arrives in Sha Tin. Um, and and this is interesting. I mean, you know, the geography of Hong Kong. Um, and Paul, I think you were hinting about uh, a bit at it just bit just now. The entire eastern new territories which houses i believe probably about one million people is one of the fastest growing areas in hong kong um it covers about seven or eight train stops from from north of the lion rock all the way up to shot uh, up to up to to china the shenzhen border that only had that one cinema until essentially uh last summer when uh when new cinemas opened in um in several of the suburbs uh, so right now, now the the, the cinema uh, or now the whole neighborhood has about three three cinemas now. I think four cinemas, including uh, the one in Sha Tin, and 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 uh, this incident just sort of highlights 
we don't need that cinema anymore, right? It's as I thought you would yeah. you you find it funny to know that that story. Well, I'm not know, sure the woman's okay. I mean, she's not dead. The woman's not dead, but I think she got a good. You know, she got the wind knocked out of her. I think. Yeah, and hopefully a free pass. <laughs> <laughs> I would not go there to that cinema for free ever. Even if they pay me, I would not watch the movies in that theater. Yeah, it's it's not. It was not a good experience, and that's why we always chose to, you know, uh, go travel a little bit farther. And for us, really, the only options were the two closest options were either going to um, Festival Walk or Olympic or Yunlong, which are really way out of the way. Um, first people living in, on the on the East Rail. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, we had heard last year, I think we might have talked about this, that a Fun Lang, a new Fun Lang cinema was supposed to be uh, being built. Um, so that would, yep. you know, that's good news for people, in, you know, in sort of the North New Territories area near uh, Shangshui. And it's already yeah, open. Is it already open? Okay, It's great. already open. A new cinema opened in, I think, one new one in Shenzhen, one new one in Fangling, and I think one in Taipo, I believe. Mm. Yeah, so I think there's uh, I mean, three new cinemas uh, uh, because of this new technology where you can build um, you can build uh, uh, cinemas without having a projector in every cinema. Mm. So there's new technology where you can have one central projector room and that transmits to all the other auditoriums. So that that means a lot of sort of safe um, uh, uh, space saving measures uh, for cinemas. And uh, so you got MCL, the, the chain, um, taking advantage of that. With uh, So they're propping up a, a bunch of new cinemas, including two in the new territories. And Golden Harvest has opened their farming cinema. So now, thankfully... And unfortunately, it happened right, right after you left that the East East New Territory is now covered by three cinemas, yeah. three and, new cinemas. And it's a return to form, too, because at one time, Taipo used to have a cinema, um, as did Funling. I don't think Shangshui ever had one, so it's good that, that they've gotten one. And a lot of them just closed down because they just, you know, the rents got too high and the business was, they were old style cinemas. The air conditioners used to drip on the audience and things and... Uh, you know, they just didn't have good upkeep. So it's good that they're getting, you know, newer cinemas with better technology. And uh, that will hopefully keep the cinema population thriving in the East Rail area. All right, moving on. And this has to do with today's films. Um, Nick Say um, has been ordered to stay out of the kitchen because of health issues. Um, so anyone who's fam not familiar with uh, uh, Nick Say's career, recently, in the last couple of years, uh, he's branded himself as the celebrity chef, in a way, with um, his reality show called Chef Nick. Um, now it's on for three seasons, and each season sort of sees him taking on these culinary challenge. The first one was um, he meets different celebrities, and, and they talk about many things and then and then nick would um uh, eventually cook something for them um and then in the second season he led a uh, a posse um around china to learn about uh different culinary traditions and things like that and of course he he goes in the kitchen and cook and then the third season is him meeting again once, once again meeting with celebrity friends including maggie chun and um and charlene and i think uh, michelle yo's in one of the episodes uh again sort of traveling around the world, talking about food. And then there's a, rea a reality show segment where he becomes sort of this Gordon Ramsay character and and lead these contestants to serve, do dinner service for, for, for his friends or for like these organizations. But anyway, the show has made millions of dollars. And of course, Nick Say is, is like, like I said, branded himself a celebrity chef. But unfortunately, he has suffered um, a nerve injury 
or a tendon injury in his arm due to um, due to infection or um, uh, his tendons were apparently stuck together and that led to infection and and um, and apparently it's really painful for Nick to even pick up a walk and and unfortunately this even happened because you know Nick has been so aggressive in this whole branding thing and he's been cooking and you know cooking means really intense you know lifting a lot of stuff and he's been ordered to stay out of the kitchen by his doctors that's the only way he get better um, and uh, we don't know how long this is supposed to last but this has put the fourth season of Chef Nick in jeopardy and of course Nick um, who who said that he found cooking therapeutic after his divorce with uh, Cecilia Chun um, naturally isn't really taking this well um so uh, a bit of unfortunate news news connected to uh this this week this week's film mm, yeah poor nick can't get a break you know it's uh it's a shame that uh he's got to take some rest but you know get well nick because uh more people want to see you cook uh at least that's the word i hear from his tv shows yeah, according to his uh, employees at his uh, uh, post-production company, he really is a great, great cook. Um, but you know, considering that he's like a billionaire, I'm not. I'm not. You know, it's more like a hobby. I suppose it's a hobby and um, not a sort of bank-breaking uh, a setback. At least I hope not. All right, our final bit of news this week. Uh, you have some news about Shunji Y. Yeah, not really news, but sort of this week's recommendation. Um, and you may not know about this, but uh, so Shinji Iwai, um, uh, I was uh, the director of Love, uh, Love Letter and uh, um, Hana Analysis, and um, most recently Bride for Wen Winko, a uh, very famous Japanese auteur, uh, better known to you know kids who grew up in the '90s, uh, film buffs who grew up in the '90s, especially in Asia. Um, um, He's uh, once again gone back to making a web series. So, in case you don't know, um, Hana and Alice, which is one of his um, most famous works, uh, was actually actually started as a web series selling Kit Kats. Um, I think it was a four-parter or three-parter, um, uh, and it was before web series became a thing. So, you know, it sort of shows how how forward-thinking Shinji Iwai is. Um, that was a five part. Uh, it was a web series with Kakat, and it be- he eventually reshot it, or he expanded the footage into a hundred and forty minute film. Um, and after, I think it's been about ten years since then, he's gone back. He's working with Leslie again, and uh, this time he's made a four part web series for an espresso, completely shot in Korean, um, in Korea, with a Korean cast. Um, the, the 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 series is called Changok's Letter and it stars uh, Beiduna, who uh, Western audience may know from um, Sense Eight, Senses Eight, um, and of course, you know Korean films film fans would know her very well. Uh, she's one of the most distinct uh, Korean actresses around, and she's also been in uh, Koreeda's uh, Air Doll and Linda Linda Linda, one of my favorite Korean actresses out there. Um, and she stars as a, a a sort of suffering housewife who is. Um, Taking care of a troublesome mother-in-law um, and balancing a, a, a uh, life with kids who are sort of unappreciative, you know, teenagers, and of course a husband um, who is so concentrated with work that he can't even bother to really take care of his family. Um, it's a really gentle sort of four-part, uh, four little stories, four little snippets of life from uh, this character, uh, character's life, and um, I've watched all four of them in about two days. They add up to about um 70 minutes of stuff so and i found it really really great i really really enjoyable 
Um, and I think that if Shinji Y ever decide to make a feature film out of it, um, it will probably be one of my favorite films of the year. I think Shinji Y's got this really gift. He's got this great, great gift for naturalism. Um, without sort of doing that whole um, uh, 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 cinema verite thing, and I and I found it really enjoyable. Um, and most importantly, the uh, actual web series, uh, and again, you'll see the link in the, in the show notes, um, is accessible to international audience. It is subtitled in Japanese, uh, of course, Korean, uh, English, and Chinese. So um, if you go to the campaign website on, on the Lesney Japan's official website, uh, you will find all the language versions that you need um, um, and uh, the YouTube links to all four parts of the show. Hmm. So does George Clooney show up at any point? <laughs> no, and 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 I, I I myself enjoy seeing Beiduna selling Nespresso better than better than seeing uh, George Clooney anyway. So yeah, yeah. And for for the uninitiated, Nespresso is kind of like this uh, capsule coffee, I guess. And right. And you have to have a special machine, and you put the capsules in, and it makes the coffee. And I'm not a coffee drinker, so uh, the entire ad series, be it this one or George Clooney, is completely lost on me. But I am interested to see, uh, you know, kind of the narrative that that he's put together here. I do know that the Nespresso commercials here have been quite popular just because of Clooney and some of his friends goofing around in uh, the the short clips that they do uh, on this side of the Pacific. So very interested to take a look at this. And it's great that they've kind of targeted not just for the Asian audience, but for the international audience as well. Well, I should add that actually this is not specifically an espresso campaign. Uh, I, I should correct myself is that because well, here's the thing. The, all four parts of the film don't even include a close-up of the machine. because So every episode, you know, you have the coffee and you can see her drinking the coffee. But you don't really get a close-up of the machines she's using. So I can't even be sure if she's using the capsule machine in espresso. Or is she just selling Nescafe, mm. which is the um the, the what the powder I guess the instant powder whatever, or the coffee maker coffee beans I can't tell which is amazing for a uh, a branded uh, branded content. Mm. All right, so check that out if you get a chance. We'll take a short musical break and we'll be back to talk about our first film for this week, Kevin's look at Cook Up a Storm. And welcome back for our East Screen selection this week. Kevin's telling us about Nick Tse's latest film, Cook Up a Storm. That's right. Copa Storm is, again, like I was saying earlier in the news section, it's an extension of uh, um, the uh, Chef Nick brand. It is actually not connected to Chef Nick um, because even, even in the film, uh, Nick isn't called Chef Nick. I mean, she's, she, he actually is. He's actually a character. But it, is, it, it was built on Emperor trying to continue the brand Chef Nick because the show has made millions and millions and millions of dollars for the TV program, the, I mean, the TV channel and the network and, of course, Emperor and, of course, Nick Say, who is a, a producer on the show. Um, so what I hear is that even though the film supposedly cost $250 million, 
um, Norman B to make. Um, the show doesn't even have to be a hit at the box office because it has a bunch of product placements and it would deliver ratings for a TV show. And it certainly has done that because there are plenty of product placements. Um, um, and of course, the better the, uh, the the more publicity the film has, um, people can always tune in to see the TV show for free. And and as long as that rating is there, um, money's being made and that's all that matters. Um so if you if you if you if you're sick of that kind of synergy or 360 approach, um, this film is not for you. Um, the film is uh, directed by Raymond Yip uh, and is co-written by and, and produced by Manfred Wong. Um, if you remember, Manfred Wong and Raymond Yip make up the team behind for Bad Boys Only, the uh, classic uh, Hong Kong gem. He can Chang, um, Louis Koo. He can Chang, Louis Koo and. Uh, I, I, I care so much about For Bad Boys Only that I can't even muster the energy to say fake compliments about it. But anyway, these guys continue to make up one of the most bizarrely successful filmmaking teams in Chinese cinema. So Raymond Yip and Raymond Wong, they, they've been concentrating their efforts in, um, in, in China. And these guys actually directed um, Lost on Journey, which, was, which began – it was the first film – in the Lost in Hong Kong, Lost in Thailand series. So without Lost on Journey by these guys, we wouldn't have Lost in Thailand or Lost in Hong Kong. Um, even though, you know, Xu Jin, the star of the, the film, ended up taking over the franchise. Um, these guys started that franchise. Um, they also made uh, The House That Never Dies, which was a huge uh, horror uh, success in China. Made back, like, I think, like, like 500% of the budget. Um and of course, they most recently did Phantom of the Theater, which I subtitled, so I shouldn't say anything bad about them. I should really stop here. But it's really bizarre at how these guys who are not particularly, I don't find particularly um, 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 unique or talented, um, continue to be sort of successful in their small scale way. Um because especially I find that the directing is slow, lazy in this film that that Nick say took up the uh, the role of culinary director. Um, anyway, so I should talk about the story a little bit. Um, ben- beneath the glitzy skyscrapers of Shunda uh, sits Spring Ling, a uh, small residential district uh, filled with grass roots and, and uh, people of the lower class. And the star restaurant uh, of Springling is Seven, a very um, rundown local joint that that is that attracts long, long lines and TV cameras. And it is headed by talented young chef Sky, played by Nick Say. No relation to the uh, Legend of Speed character, I assume, played by Yikin Chan. Um, Sky is also the estranged, uh, the estranged son of a culinary master who left home years ago. And uh, he inherited the restaurant from his master, played by Ge Yo. The restaurant's existence is threatened when half-Chinese, half-Korean Michelin star chef Paul An, played by K-pop band CM Blue um, leader Jong Yong-hwa, opens up a new restaurant across the street from Seven. The competition between the two rival chefs heat up when they go head-to-head in a nationwide cooking competition. Um... So as I was saying, um, this is made by just these two guys, um, and I guess it's sort of Raymond Yip's uh, return to Cantonese cinema. He hasn't made a Cantonese film in a while, uh, even uh, the House That Never Dies, Mandarin, um, Phantom of Theater, uh, Mandarin, and these guys have been, you know, very successful in the mainland cinema, and and this sort of their return to I guess Cantonese cinema. Um, 
uh, but apparently Raymond Yip's um, sort of lazy directorial style still has not improved uh, because he is so lazy that Nick Say and several, I think at least two other names were credited as the culinary director of the film. Uh, I think Nick Say is the main culinary director as in it suggests that he directed the food sequences of the film, which is really messed up because beyond the cooking scenes of this film, there really isn't much to lean on. There's not much really to watch. Um, in fact, directing, again, so lazy, and there's a mile, mile, mile spoiler, that the uh, competition in the finale have people waving light sticks in the audience. Who the hell does that? Do you go to a cooking competition? It's not a concert. I mean, do they think they're going to a Nixay concert and they decide to wave light sticks? Who the hell waves anything <laughs> at a cooking contest? I, as I found that really weird. And of course, you have that old Hong Kong uh, cinema tradition where everyone speaking different languages can't actually communicate with each other. So you have one judge who's Korean and you have a judge who's like who speaks English. And then suddenly when the other judges speak Chinese, everyone understand each other. It's one of those. It's one of those movies from like the eighties and nineties Hong Kong cinema. Um, uh, unfortunately, the um, the film really has poorly sketched characters, so that makes the whole rivalry between the two characters, uh, Paul An and Sky, just barely there because the the, the characters are really paper thin. Um, uh, the story is is pretty pretty typical. Uh, you got these two guys, and, and it really doesn't. The problem is that it really doesn't. Um, um, what's the word? Emphasize sort of the joy of cooking. What is the point of cooking? Um, why do these people enjoy cooking? What is it? What do they get out of it? And what do we as audience get out of watching these people cook? Not much. The thing is, restaurants are all over the place. Foodie shows are all over TV. Um, we can watch those, and I find more joy in watching those people cook and watching those people talk about food than in this film where they don't even talk about anything beyond you know beyond the fact that Nick Say is cooking on camera um so I didn't really feel anything I don't really feel I didn't really feel particularly inspired or hungry the food didn't even look that appealing to me because there is no skill behind it or there's no explanation the skills behind it um also minor spoiler is this all biographical because the the sort of the core conflict of the film is in addition to the rivalry between two chefs, is between Nick or, or Sky and his um, uh, much more successful older father, and and the fact that Sky is to live in the shadow of his very famous father. Um, I don't know if that sounds familiar to any of you. Um, look up Nick says at Wikipedia if you want to know what I mean. Um, I'm also I'm always reminded the words world building. Um, so I know the big thing these days, you talk about world building, right? You say, well, build um, a believable world around a story to make the story, you know, to make the people, you know, worth caring and to make the uh, story worth telling. But there isn't any world building happening. Um, and this sort of shows a much bigger flaw in Chinese cinema in general is that writers don't know how to build worlds because all they do is create a bunch of events with very paper-thin characters with no background. And this happens a lot, with, especially with uh, police procedural action films, things like that, where I guess they're unable or they just don't look for the chance to build characters. Instead, they're filled with exposition, with um, a lot of plot, and and hardly any reason to, to engage in what's going on. Um, Unfortunately, the film is also a waste of uh, Goyo, 
who is a contracted actor, Emperor, and also Anthony Wong, who plays the, the father. He's also contracted by Emperor, by the way. But both are a sight for sore eyes in this in this um, in this sort of dreadful film. They're both very good for what they have to do here. Um, Coke Up a Storm, by the way, was meant to be a Lunar New Year film. It was meant to start open in the, on the first day of Lunar New Year this year. Uh, but it went up. It was going up against um, Han Han's Duckweed, Stephen Chow's uh, Journey to the West, and and uh, Wan Bao Chang's Buddies to India. And um, and honestly, so it, it got moved uh, by two weeks to uh, February 10th to, to get out of that competition. And I would say, and even even has the ending with all the characters on screen, you know, wishing everyone gong hei fa chua, gong hei fa chua, and, you know, a, a compilation, for some reason, a weird MTV or twins singing a New Year song compared with uh, old footage with uh, Nick Say and Ethan Chan done 12 years ago it's very odd that little comparison it's almost like they they shoved that in there just to make it a new year film hmm. uh but honestly i did not feel any joy that you should watch or it didn't even have that inventiveness it didn't have the comedy it didn't have the wild um sort of uh kitchen sink approach to anything it's like a very average tv movie about cooking and um and i didn't feel anything that that even resembled a Lunar New Year film. So I guess Cook Up a Storm would be fine for Nick Say fans, especially fans of Chef Nick. But honestly, I mean, it, I think this sums up the entire, you know, exercise is that Nick Say doesn't even seem like he wanted to be in the film. So that's it. Cook Up a Storm. Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't get the whole cooking craze and even cooking shows themselves. I can't really watch myself. They just... If I'm going to watch somebody cook, I want to be able to eat what they're cooking. That's about it. And if I can't do that because I'm watching it on TV or I'm I'm in the audience and they're not going to feed me after they cook, uh, I kind of want to use my time for something else. Um, but it does bring to mind some earlier Hong Kong cinema films in terms of the, the subject matter. I'm thinking like Zoe Hark's The Chinese Feast, uh, of course, Stephen Chow's God of Cookery, um, and, you know, even more, you know, perhaps things that are, aren't quite as well received, like, you know, Lady Iron Chef, where, you know, the subject matter is cooking and cooking competitions. Um, in those segments, you had mentioned that, you know, where they're really, you know, focusing on the food. Is that at all entertaining? I mean, because you said that Nick had kind of taken over the, the directing for those spots. Because um, I know that like, when I watched The Chinese Feast... You, you know, you it's a it, it's got good characters, good story, but the sequences where they're actually showing people like preparing food are pretty amazing. And a similar idea, I mean, they play with it a little bit more. It's a lot more comedic in God of Cookery, right? Do they have that kind of attention to detail here? Well, the thing about God of Cookery is that a lot of it is sort of played off as a joke. I mean, the whole thing about the pissing pissing beef balls. I mean, come on. <laughs> They're really great gags in God of Cookery, and it's, it had very simple truths. And in fact, Cook Up a Storm steals one or two plot points that are reminiscent of God of Cookery. I don't want to say which ones, and I feel like I already spoiled the film a little bit by saying that it does that. But a few of those, actually, you're like, I watched this point, plot point in God of Cookery 12 years ago. Why am I, or 20 years ago? Um, I mean, why is get, it still being done as a new Nick, thing? Nick, Nick cries into his food, doesn't he? <laughs> it makes it sweeter, <laughs> right? <laughs> Or, or 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 chef's face or no Nick's face is uh is sliced by a, a chopper. Oh yeah. no! No Not the face. 
<laughs> the beautiful face. No, um, it just has. That's the thing. When God of Cookery, even beyond the the ridiculous cooking stuff, it actually it, it has a great story of, and it has great Stephen Chow um comedy in it. it has a great cast. This one doesn't have a great cast. It doesn't have a great story. It doesn't even have great cooking in it. So. You know, there are. I guess it does a couple of interesting things, and like I said, the whole autobiographical um, um, watching it in that approach, which is not. I don't think it was intended, but it just seems like I guess whenever Nick has to Nick has to work on a story, it ends up being about him and his dad. Um, it, 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 it beyond that, you know, there's really not. It's not a very interesting or entertaining film. Well, there you have it. If you're a Nick Save fan, you might want to check it out. If not, but you're a fan of cooking shows, it might be something for you. If you're neither of those, you might want to wait until this uh, comes your way in perhaps a streaming format. All right, our next film for this week, uh, another East Screen feature, technically, um, although it is playing over here in the States on the big screens, and that is the somewhat controversial film from Zhang Yimou, The Great Wall, um, starring a cast of Matt Damon and some other people. Uh, the story is Matt Damon saves China, right? That's what it's about. Um, actually, uh, it's a little bit more in-depth than that. Uh, this takes place during the Song Dynasty, uh, during what is known as the Reign of the Renzong Emperor. And a few miles north of the Great Wall, you have a group of mercenaries from Europe who are traveling to China in search for the legendary Black Powder. Um, but uh, it's been a hard journey, and many of them get killed off. Two survivors, one played by Matt Damon as William, and the other named Tovar, played by Pedro Pascal, who um, fans of Game of Thrones will remember. He died a very grim death a couple seasons back. Um, they are both here, and they are found alive after having slashed off some kind of, of monster's hand. Um, they are taken to the Great Wall um, under much suspicion, and there they learn that this fantastical construction is put in place to try and protect China, not from foreign bandits or foreign raiders, but something much more sinister. Um, the garrison at the Great Wall is named uh, is called the Nameless Order, and they're led by General Shou, played by Zhang Hanyu, who fans may remember from more recently, what was he in? Operation Mekong, I think, and uh, Taking of Tiger Mountain. So he's like the main general here. But of course, the reason why many of us go to see this movie, not because of Matt Damon, but because of strategist Wang, played by the ever-great Andy Lau. Um, so yes, Andy Lau, uh, Eddie Peng also makes an appearance here. And the, the, that's the basic plot. There's monsters attacking the wall, and uh, Matt Damon gets caught up in this thing, uh, you know, and he kind of saves them all. Isn't that great? Um, so this is a controversial film because of that, because of the sort of white savior complex that's being laid 
at the feet of this film. Um, is that a fair label? We talked a little bit about that in the news section. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here. But can I just say right off, and this is going to be a spoiler. I'm going to throw a spoiler warning in here right off the bat. Um, it's a minor spoiler, but a spoiler nonetheless. So if you don't want to hear it, to jump ahead about 30 seconds or so. Because mother flipping aliens in ancient China with Andy Lau and Eddie Peng. Okay? <laughs> Science fiction in ancient China with an Andy Lau and Eddie Peng in the cast. Can I ask for more? No, I cannot. Okay? So uh, I'm, I was super excited uh, as the plot slowly unfurled. I'm like, this is great. This is insane. This is crazy. Um, and you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's not really a great movie, but that made me happy. Just, it just made me giddy like a school kid, um, watching, you know, sci-fi Sunday afternoon or something. Um, this film has a lot of craziness to it and a lot of it's very problematic. Um, we're going to touch on some of these ideas. I mean, even beyond the whole Matt Damon uh, issue, um, the, the units at the wall, the military units are broken up into colors for convenience. You've got the red guys who are like the archers and, uh, the green guys who do something else. And then there's a blue unit that's made up of all girls and, um, they are led by Jing Tian and uh, you will perhaps have seen her in films like from Vegas to Macau. Um, she's going to be in the upcoming, uh, Kong Skull Island and uh, I think she was in um, Special ID as well. So she's been around, doesn't have a, a very huge filmography, but uh, she sort of uh, picks up the slack here as, as the stuff hits the fan, as it were. Um, but she's kind of, you know, in the nameless order in charge of the women. The women wear blue, they wear blue armor, and they're in charge of doing two things, okay? Uh, the first thing they get to do is when the aliens come to charge the wall, they get to beat the battle drums. Now, the battle drums are sort of Japanese taiko-style big drums. If you've ever seen the taiko drummers perform, these are not the ones that sit flat on the ground, but the ones that are sort of up, and, you know, vertical, and you're hitting them at the, on the side. And they're hitting them with nunchucks. Okay, so you've got this ama these amazing shots of these women just banging nunchucks to, to beat the drums. I don't know if they actually did that or if it was CGI, but it's, it's kind of an interesting scene. And at first I thought, well, is that all they do? Are they just the drum bangers? No, Zhang Yimou decides to make them the bait in one of the most inefficient fighting techniques I think I've ever seen devised. Uh, these women get to bungee jump off the Great Wall down to the hordes of aliens that are rushing the Great Wall and, and coming up. Now, these things are like, I think our friend Kozo described them on Twitter as Hulk dogs, right? They're like gamma-radiated giant dogs, basically. Um, yeah, with big big maws, big teeth, and uh, they just come in a horde. And so these girls, they drop down on bungees with spears, and they're stabbing them, and they're being pulled up. They're basically fishing with Chinese female soldiers. And is it a gender issue? I don't know, but why do they rationalize they do that? Because they're light, right? They're easier to pull up than the male soldiers. Um, you know, that that's that's the rationale for do this. It seems grossly inefficient because these girls get picked off right and left. I mean, they're really fishing bait. And it's laughable and tragic at the same time to sort of watch that happen. This movie feels like a game. It really does. If you're familiar with StarCraft, you're going to recognize a lot of what's going on here. This is basically, you know, monsters, aliens that do a Zerg rush. Um, there are traits and hints to things like the bugs in Starship Troopers. You've got 
different monsters. Well, there's basically two classes that they show of monster, um, but they have different abilities. Um, they're smart, they're clever, they can learn, and it really just it has the look and feel of of you know strategic um, RTS games, I guess. But as I said, despite all this this mess, there's some really good stuff. Of course, the greatest thing ever, Andy Lau. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Kevin, but Sync Sound, right? Or a really good no. post-dub in English post-dub. and Putonghua. Post-dub. Post-dub, oh, post-dub. Sure. Okay, well, really good post-dub hear it, job. Yeah. Look, you know, I, I, I agree that uh, Damon's character is a poorly written white savior. As the movie's going along, I'm okay with it up until about, I want to say, the 30-minute the or the 40-minute mark. Because it seems like, okay, you know, he's just this guy. He's got an accent that's all over the place. I guess he's supposed to be Irish. Couldn't really tell. His buddy seems like he's from Italy, you know, sort of the Marco Polo thing, whatever. Yeah, okay, it's a fantasy. We'll buy into it. Um, and so basically what happens is they get into the the first big battle. And, and these guys, the two of them, sort of prove themselves. Bat Damon's basically um, a super archer. Right, you know, so think of uh, of who like Hawkeye from the Avengers or Green Arrow. You know, he's basically like that in ancient China. Um, he can hit bullseyes all over the place. These um, Tao Te, as they're called, the way you bring them down is they've got an eye on each of their shoulders, and you got to shoot them in both eyes. So how convenient that he just has the the right skills to bring them down. Um, so they survive the first battle. He saves a soldier, while these poor girls who are dangling like fishing bait are getting decimated. And so after the battle, they walk into this banquet hall, standing ovation, right? The, these two guys get a massive standing ovation. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, yeah, we're back to the sort of white savior issue now. Because I'm thinking, how many other heroic acts went on that day by all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of soldiers here? And these two guys are just going to get a standing ovation. It's like, what, just because they're outsiders, because they're white dudes? Come on. It's kind of in your face. It's it's a bit over the top. It, it was a scene that just made me roll my eyes and say, "Okay, yeah, I'm I'm afraid some of the some of the uh, some of the argument going on about this film is is unfortunately correct." Um, but the the other side of this is that this is what gets Andy Lau and Eddie Pang and others on a Hollywood screen in my local cinema. I kind of got to go with it, right? Because if they would have put a Daniel Wu, I mean, I, I you could have easily seen a Daniel Wu in this role. They would have put a Jackie Chan um, or you know anybody else, a Chow Yun Fat. Is it gonna bring? Is it gonna bring the general audience in? And is that racism? Maybe I don't know. But from a business standpoint, picking Matt Damon as the quote unquote savior, they could have written him better. Sure, yes, I absolutely agree. Um, but putting his name up there as a business decision, I, I, I do understand that. And putting somebody else's name there, you know, that doesn't have that kind of capital flow, that's a business deal at the end of the day, right? Um, so, yes, I would have preferred to see a Daniel Wu. It would have made more sense than some Irish guy who made, you know, who somehow hooked up with an Italian who somehow got over to China. You know, again, it's a fantasy, so we can suspend some disbelief. But, um you know, even Jackie Chan films don't get massive release over here. I, I, you know, the last, what was the last Hollywood film he did? Skip Trace. Um, I don't know how well it did, but um, the last two films he had, Railroad Tigers and Kung Fu Yoga, not playing in cinemas anywhere near me. So, you know, even he doesn't really have the power that he once did, I think, back in 
uh, the early 2000s, the late 90s. I want to throw the stick back over to Kevin because that's kind of my spiel. I mean, I, I loved the film. I hated the film uh, for various reasons. And I came away from the film going, eh, okay. <laughs> you know, it's a big, big CGI spectacle. Eh, it's very typical. You know, yeah, it's got problems. I didn't hate it um, completely. Uh, it was entertaining at points. And, hey, I got to see people that I love to see on screen, on a screen near me. Um, so, you know, thanks for that. Um, so Kevin, you know, you saw this cause this showed in Hong Kong back in like December. So what was your reaction? What was the reaction to the local audience and, and what are your thoughts on some of the issues surrounding it? Well, uh, a few corrections, I guess this was meant to be a U.S. project. It was a U.S. led project. Um, it was meant to be directed by Edward Swick, um, and, which is a team behind Last Samurai, which makes mm. uh, China the second or the third country that team has um, whitewashed after Japan and South Africa and Blood Diamond and now China. But um, that so that script was um, rewritten. But that the idea actually started with the founder of Legendary Entertainment, Thomas Ho. Um, he uh, Thomas Toh, sorry, he had the idea for the film. Edward Swick was brought in, and his team was brought in to write the script. He was meant to direct it. He left, and then um, the script was once again rewritten when Zhang Yimou hopped on, also by two Caucasian-American scriptwriters. So everything you hear now are actually, uh, it was it was written, created, uh, and most of the crew were um, are non-Chinese. So this is actually a very much a Western production shot in China with Chinese money. And I'm not sure how much, in, well, I guess the influence of the Chinese investor is Jing Tan, because what the hell is Jing Tan doing the film? <laughs> actually, early on, early on, early reports suggested, or well, actually early reports say that Zhang Ziyi was meant to be in one uh, important role in the film. And I suspect that it may be what ha- what became the Jing Tan role, um, which would make sense. You want, a, you know, a budget, you know, a film like, like a Zhang Zi, like a Zhang Yimou film with such a big budget, you definitely want a big Chinese star to match with, to match with uh, the likes of Matt Damon. And somehow it became Jin Tang. And um, oddly enough, uh, legendary owned by Wanda. Now uh, with Wanda, a huge uh, investor also happens to uh, produce a uh, Kong Skull Island, which also has Jin Tang. So um, anywho, Zhang Yimou sort of said that I think he took on this job as a uh, well. First of all, uh, 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 he did have extra kids and has to pay a huge fine to the government, so obviously he needs some money. Um, and 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 he also said in interviews that he meant to uh, make this film to uh, open the road, open the path for the next generation of filmmakers. Essentially, I think he's saying that. Well, I have to do this thing where I have to go work with Americans and try to do this big co-production. If I'm not the one to do it, how do I open up a path for next generation of filmmakers to go to Hollywood or to go big work in, you know, work for the U.S. or try and do these kind of productions? Um, And I think that he sort of had more of that. um, He felt more of that motivation more than actually making a film of any real artistic uh, uh, importance because if you watch the film I, I, I think it, it, it's so Hollywood workman like it's such work, worksmanship it's edited in, in such a, um, a fluid but but um, a very a, a very sort of one tone sort of one rhythm that it sort of lost everything that people would look for in a Zhang Yimou film. Yeah, sure, they, they kept the uh, the colorful glass from the flowers of war in that, that sort of pagoda scene the end, but I didn't really see much of Zhang Yimou in there. 
Uh, in fact, I think Zhang Zhang Yimou was sort of like executor, and I'm not sure, you know, artistically. Um, surely there's a few sort of touches there, Zhang Yimou, but I wouldn't even bother calling this a Zhang Yimou film in the traditional sense that, you know, the control that he's used to have on sets. Um, how the audience react? Well, first of all, it didn't do as well in China as expected. Um, uh, it seems like Wanda might be a bit embarrassed by the U.S. growth and the fact that it didn't, uh, it really didn't make as much money as they expected in China. Uh, and uh, it's done okay. It's made over 200 million worldwide. But, you know, U.S. is sort of their their last real huge market. They're trying to make a lot of money back from there. Um but it seems like uh, it's not going to happen because the film cost 150 million U.S. dollars to make, and it was supposed to be this landmark uh, production that would have, you know, be a huge hit and and sort of opened up a whole path of U.S.-China co-production. And the U.S. studio is ec- ecstatic because they get to keep 40 percent of the money instead of 25 percent because it's a co-production, um, and it, it's only made 220 million, which means. Um, it hasn't even um, so. If you make a film for 150 million, you only get back half the box office, which means um, right now the producers have only earned 110 million um, uh, back. Uh, but the film cost 150 plus an extra 130 in publicity and advertising and all that stuff. So they it, it is going to be sort of register. It is going to register as a disappointment, um, and that's partly because of bad word of mouth. I think, um, and I think it's pretty well deserved. I think it did okay in Hong Kong, but certainly not the astronomical numbers um, that that you know people are expecting in China. I think it did better than than expected in Taiwan and Singapore, but like I said, it, it's still a long way from breaking even. And um, and the film itself, if you look at it, no one really talked about the actual story of the film. Every story you see about the Great Wall is about U.S. China, U.S. China, U.S. China co-production, co-production, and business side of it. No one is talking about the story because there is nothing worth talking about in this story. <laughs> there are a ton of sort of logical, sort of logic loopholes or, or logical, you know, logic. Um, uh, uh, um, what's the word? Plot holes. And weirdly enough, the only person, the only Chinese person in that cast actually speaks English, who is Eddie Pang not only doesn't say a word of English in the film, his Mandarin is dubbed because he has the Taiwan accent. So yeah. not only does he... It, it's all sort of like, what? 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 Period films don't make money in China and they forget to, and they forget about that and they think that make a film about Great Wall and China will love it and we have Matt Damon. Um, it's really odd. And um, I guess I should add a little bit that um, uh, I think some people find it odd that Chinese people would be okay because only in America are people bringing up this sort of issue of whitewashing the story because um, for Chinese audiences, they don't see it like that. They, for First of all, is it really Matt Damon saves China? Not quite. I personally don't think it's quite like that. Well, but it is, it is, it, it does, I mean, okay, he's the guy who finds, he brings them the magnet, he's, he's also a super archer, and then, you know, the whole thing at the end, you know, it, it has that typical Hollywood hero narrative, right? Without him, China falls, basically. He, he is, you know, his actions are the linchpin uh, of, of the plot. And with, with that, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a definite, 
you know, a, a definite grievance there. And he could have been written differently. It could have been cast differently. Um, and I, sure. I'm sorry for interrupting. I, I want you to continue your point on, on, on the, the China view. Right. No, I, I think you made a valid point there. But um, for Chinese people, they don't care about this because for them, they think that casting Matt Damon as the head of their they, – they sort of take it as their film, even though it's a U.S. production. They see it as their film. They find it a point of um, – something that's worth being proud of because it means that as a nationalistic point of view, China right now is so big that Matt Damon has to come to China to make money. Mm. They have to bake us – they have to bake us. They have to be sit. They have to sit at our door, stand outside our door, waiting to come in and to make our money. And you have to like us to make our money. If you don't like us, you don't get our money. That's the Chinese point of view. So for them, Matt Damon in in a, in a Zhang Yimou film, that's awesome because it means that we're big. China's big. China is huge now. China demands the attention of America. So for them again, you know, is is it politics? It's it, it's definitely a nationalistic um, angle to it, and that's that's why Chinese people don't care about so-called whitewashing because on the business side, it, it, which is what everyone is talking about the film anyway, for them it's something for them to be proud of. That's an interesting point, and you know, again, a very different perspective from some of what we see here in the states. And again, I do understand the sort of I know that there are lots of up and coming. Asian American actors who just don't get a shot, they don't get a break because this is the way that Hollywood skews. And we talked about the Scarlett Johansson issue um, and the the whole argument that makes the case for her making a film that should, you know, arguably go to an Asian American actress. I, you know, I, I, I get that and I, I get the business side of it. Um, and again, I'm very much torn because I want more films like this. You know, I want films that are going to bring Andy Lau to my screen, that are going to bring Eddie Pang to my screen. And if they can only do that with a co-production where they stick uh, Matt Damon or Ben Affleck or Christian Bale or somebody as the lead line, uh, you know, uh, if I say no to that, then I don't get that stuff, right? Um, so the selfish part of me, you know, wants to say, do it. And the more more politically correct side of me says, nah, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you should, you should, you know, you should try and educate and get the audiences to go out and, and and be different, but I know that's a very hard thing to do. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. So if you'd like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at congcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-S-T dot com. You can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash congcast. You can email us eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Facebook at easts. West S. I will also urge you to the other savior of China, uh, Mr. Kevin Ma, and all the things that he does. <laughs> <laughs> so please follow along with him on his, uh, you know, in social media and other spaces. Sir, where can they find out more about you? 
You can read my content on the uh, Cathay Pacific in-flight magazine, uh, Discovery, and also the Cathay Dragon in-flight magazine, Cathay Dragon. I was happy to see uh, my neighbor uh, on the airplane take his copy of Discovery off the plane. I hope that he gets to the section of my faces and realizes that he sat next to the guy who put that part of that magazine together by the way you can read the work um in the magazine uh in february i write about amadovar's uh new film julieta and uh, a couple of other tv stuff um uh no ipad app for now and uh no idea what's gonna happen to uh other content just yet no real announcement i can make right now um but uh if you can try and grab a copy uh, somewhere uh, I think the work we do is pretty good and uh, got really great critics writing for us and uh, Marsh would bring on much more uh, even more exciting content and uh, I can talk about that once we hit once the, ma- the magazines are in the plane um, you can uh, also follow my Twitter I am at the golden rock that's one word the golden rock um, and uh, you can email me at the golden rock at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments all right excellent our next show, episode 218, Kevin may possibly be talking about uh, Kung Fu Yoga, right? Or something else. <laughs> 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 and uh, if possible, there there may be a Korean film headed my way with Fabricated City. So I may talk about that if I can get out to see it. If not, I may be back out to try and catch uh, Lego Batman movie, if possible. Not sure what's going to happen, but one of those things uh, should happen. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying, if you can't stand the heat, get out of Nick Say's kitchen, and we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Oh,